Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is December the 16th, 2019. This is episode 2,568 of the Survival Podcast, and it's time for a listener feedback show, because we're back from the weekend on a Monday, and that's what we do on Mondays most of the time. Quick reminder, this week is the last week of 2019 for the Survival Podcast. It's not the last week of the year, but it is the last week for the show. I will be running rewinds in between Christmas and New Year's, and uh, the schedule will be put out for that very, very soon. Um, I just thought it was too long of a period to not have anything out there for you guys that are still in your car driving back and forth to work and in between or whatever. Uh, but we'll run re rewinds. I shut down every year for that period. Just a reminder that it is coming. Here's what I got for you guys today. Dealing with cast iron cookware that was treated with <clears throat> gun oil. Yeah. Not really sure if that's what it was, but it's what it smells like, and there's reason to believe it was something that you're not supposed to cook on. Well, what do you do now? Uh, the lessons being learned from the Virginia Second Amendment showdown. I had two questions come in on that for Steve Wise. I've sent them off to him. Uh, we'll probably hear back from him after the new year on that one. I'm going to give you a little bit of my thoughts on it today. And somebody said, would would something like this get you involved in politics again from a standpoint of being a voter, an activist, whatever? The answer is not really, and I'll explain why. And I think this actually makes a pretty good case for my view on these things. Um, can you make hard lemonade the way you make hard cider? I'm going to tell you why you wouldn't like the result if you did, but we'll talk about what you might be able to do instead. Um, I have a couple hacks for you guys on how to vacuum seal wet foods. Uh, this comes in for someone wants to do sous vide with basically a wet marinade. And I could see that being the case. I could also see it being the case that you just want to you know, have a, a marinade inside your vacuum seal bag and an item be frozen so that when you take it out, even if you let it defrost in the refrigerator or whatever, it's already in its marinade. Uh, I do season a lot of steaks and things like that with dry rubs and then vacuum seal them, but I do this as well. And there are certain things that you might want to do as a sous vide where you would want some liquid. Well, anybody that's ever used a vacuum sealer knows a problem with that. You start to run the vacuum sealer, the liquid comes up the bag and gets in the seal and ruins the seal. So how do we solve this? i got two ways you can do it. And I'll tell you that when we cover that today. Um, what's up with the China trade deal? Is the phase one of the trade deal real? Is it fake? Is it vaporware? And, and where is this thing with the China trade deal and Trump going? Uh, question on a good floor safe. That's going to be a real quick answer there. Um, another university is laying off staff and downsizing. It's coming. I'm telling you, it's coming. Uh, I started talking about this several years ago. And even a lot of people in this audience that generally respect my opinion said, you're, you're just out there in la-la land, Jack. We're not going to have universities laying off staff and closing down departments and stuff like that. That's not going to happen. Well, it's happening. And it's, it's doing what these things always do. I'll save my thoughts for about it when we get to that one. What about, see, you sold a gun a long time ago, like 10, 15 years ago. At like a gun show, using the gun show loophole, which isn't a loophole at all. It's just private sale of a firearm. 
But you didn't get any paperwork filled out, or if you did, uh, a bill of sale or something like that, you lost it. And now you're worried that somewhere out there is a gun with a serial number on it. If that gun ever turns up somewhere, uh, they're going to go check records, and they're going to find where that gun was sold, and then they're going to go find that form, 4440, and they're going to say, hey, Bill, you own this gun. Where the hell, you know, how did it get to where it is? What do you do about that? It, honestly, there's not a lot you can do. Um, but we'll, actually, we might punt this one over to Steve Wise as well for things that maybe I'm missing, but I'll tell you what I think about it. And what about mulching your raised beds that you filled up all the way? And now there's no room left for the mulch. What do you do? That's a real easy one, too. We'll cover all of that more today. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today, Ready Made Resources. The company that does what it says and says what it does, right there in the title, Ready Made Resources. All the resources you need, ready made and ready to go. From the practical to the tactical, guns to gardens, and everything in between, Ready Made Resources, who's been sponsoring the show for 10 years now, has it at, you guessed it, ReadyMadeResources.com. Next up today, Western Botanicals, a real company with real people that really care about you. And if you pick the phone up and call them for customer service, you're going to talk to a real human being in Utah, not New Delhi. Yeah, I mean, this is a real company that has everything you can think of that's herbal. If it's herbal and legal, they have it at Western Botanicals. It's either wild-crafted or organically grown as well. And they have even the components you need to make your own herbal uh, preparations, like, let's say, uh, beeswax or menthol crystals and stuff like that. So it's not just herbs and raw herbs and herbal formulas. It's everything you need to do to make your own, plus you can buy pre-made formulas. They also give away their discount membership for free to members of the MSB, which more than covers your first year of MSB membership. Check them out today at westernbotanicals.com. And with that, let's get on into it. Let's start off with a... Quote of the day, um, John Adam, who does <clears throat> all my music programming for me, selecting songs, uh, this final week of the, 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 the year, uh, sent me all Christmas songs. So we're going to finish out with Christmas songs. He also sent me quotes. So here's some of my favorite quotes. And I thought, well, that's good. That's one less thing for me to do today. So I decided to take his first quote on his list of quotes. This one's from a guy I kind of like. I bet you do, too. Benjamin Franklin. Ben Franklin is, is probably my favorite founder because he, he never really got too deeply involved in the politics of actually doing things as a leader, ruler, whatever you want to call it. He was behind-the-scenes guy that was more concerned about the environment of liberty. Uh, that's one of the things I love about Ben. He was also a smart guy, and he said one time of doctors and medicines, he is the best physician who knows the worthlessness of most medicines. Now, do understand, you're talking about a guy that was living in the 17 and 1800s, early 1800s, late 1700s, at a time when there was an awful lot of legitimate, you could call it snake oil. Some of it actually was snake oil. And so there was a lot of stuff that people were being taken advantage with. So I think this was partly that. But we had doctors. And doctors, for as long as doctors have been around, have relied on medicine of some form or another. What Franklin really what's saying here is that, well, patient heal thyself. That what we really need is to just take care of ourselves, to eat well, food is your medicine type of, of thinking. And also that many of the problems that people end up having that we think of as illnesses are things we cause for ourselves. Now you can take that in how any way you want. It is one of those quotes that's, uh, that does have to be put into some level of historical context. Again, um, I'm pretty sure Ben Franklin, if he was around today, would be a pretty big fan of penicillin. 
I think he'd think penicillin was a good thing. But I think that this quote and the view it expresses is still quite valid. What it makes me think of is all the drug commercials that I see on TV, and the list of side effects is about a mile long. And includes things like, so you might have this, this medication that's supposed to help treat, I don't know, psoriasis. And one of the side effects is a lump in your neck or getting lymphoma. Indeed. Maybe that we could cure most psoriasis with dietary changes. I know some of you are going to be mad at me right now, but here's a little concept to just check out. Don't believe me. Go to YouTube and search for Keto Diet Psoriasis. I'm not saying it'll work for everybody. I'm just saying, go look. See what it says. See what people who have used it have to say. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, get on into it today. First up, I got an email from Buddy Roy. And um, here's what he had to say. This is a unique one for me. He says, question, can I clean off petroleum-based oils from cast iron cookware to make it safe for cooking again? And if so, how? Details, I just bought an old cast iron Dutch oven pot. I didn't notice any odd smell, but we made uh, after we made the deal, I paid the man I bought it from. He started asking me some safe questions, including seasoning using silicon and other petroleum-based oils. Having seasoned many cast iron pans, I advised him to never use such oils. After I got home, I distinctly smell what smells like gun lubes, maybe CLP or the likes, without throwing this in a big bonfire and burning it off to bare iron. Can I safely clean this out, all the pores, and make it ready to season properly? I already know the procedures for seasoning, so that's not a problem, just cleaning out the toxins. By the way, what kind of idiot does this? There's no, da- there's no doubt he's an idiot, just what kind of idiot? Hopefully no one ever does this again. Thanks, respectfully, Roy. Um, Roy, I would you know, take it for a ride to self-cleaning oven or something like that. I would go ahead and burn it all off. And the reason is I don't think that you're going to be able to clean it if it was actually seasoned. Now, I would actually say that if this oil is just like surface oil on it, then using uh, just like alcohol, anything would be a good you know grease cutter and just cleaning it really, really good would probably be sufficient. If it was actually seasoned, as in this this coating was put on it and it was heated up and cured the way that you do when you you do cast iron the right way, uh, using you know oils that are you know suitable for human consumption, the problem is that what you're actually ending up with here is a polymer. It's a polymerization uh, process, so it actually becomes extremely hard. And it chemically bonds at the surface. In fact, a very well-seasoned cast iron pan, part of why it's so beautifully non-stick is because you have multiple layers of polymer on multiple layers of polymer. Now, the odds are that you could just clean this thing really good and go to seasoning it two or three times. And I would use like a flax oil or something, a really high temp uh, seasoning oil. And it's probably okay. But since you don't really know what this fool put on there, there should, could be something that's like highly carcinogenic or something. Uh, especially when now you've heated it and you've polymerized it. 
and now you're cooking something and maybe you throw something with a little bit of acid in there, I just don't feel comfortable. And I personally would go ahead and, and, and take this thing down to bare metal and start over. It's a shame, but uh, good find anyway, probably. Dutch ovens, you know, old Dutch oven pans are hard to find. Um, so that's a good find. It says, uh, this was from Tom. Tom says, what are your or Mr. Wise's thoughts on Virginia? After your hint, you probably got flooded with these emails. I got a few. Uh, I've been con contemplating asking your opinion on Virginia for some time. But to be honest, I kind of felt, uh, filed this under the heading of not going to affect the temperature of the water in my pool. I think this will eventually get worked out in the courts and no one is actually going to go to the hills of the backwoods of Virginia and knock on doors and confiscate weapons. I just don't see it happening. I do love the overall response from the local sheriffs and counties, though. The question is, will they actually hold firm? I think in Virginia they will, uh, Tom. And, and another person asked a question about the same situation, and they threw in, would something like this, uh, attempting to just simply circumvent Second Amendment rights, get me back involved in politics? Well, let me ask you a question. There seems to be a little bit of a hesitation in Virginia right now by the people in power to actually go through with all this. Do you think they're doing that because they're afraid they're going to get voted out of office? Or do you think they're, they're doing that because they're afraid they've woken a sleeping giant and that they've pissed off basically a whole, uh, you know, it's like being in a room and you've been in there bouncing around like a bull in a china shop and all of a sudden you hear a horrid buzzing sound and you realize you're actually standing, standing in a den full of timber rattlers. What do you think is actually giving pause right now? They'll vote against me, or they'll shoot us. Because I know Tom says he doesn't see it happening, and part of me doesn't either, but we'll get to why, as far as like the National Guard going out, kicking doors in, and confiscating guns. I don't see that happening either. But I don't think it's because the people in the government would not do that if they thought it would work out well for them. I think it's because most of the guardsmen would go, no. I don't know exactly what would happen. <clears throat> And anybody tells you they do, it's full of shit. They have to be. If you knew it was going to happen, you would have the power to see the future, and you should be making lots of money like playing the lottery. We can only surmise what might happen. I think that you'd get a mixed response. I think there are absolutely uh, members of the guard that would do exactly what they were ordered to do, whatever that was. However, I wonder how many of them there are. I think it would be a distinct minority, and something tells me they might be the least equipped to get it done. I think your guardsmen that in general are MPs and combat arms guardsmen, many of whom who have been regular military deployed into combat zones, came home and decided to continue to serve as a guardsman Uh, not everybody that's in the Guard just joined the Guard. And yes, Guard units have been deployed. I don't mean to, to skip over that. That's not really what I'm talking about. Though. I'm telling you, there's just a lot of Guardsmen that were regular Army. Um, and, and if you were regular Army at this point, you were in the military for more than five or six years, odds are you deployed somewhere. Especially if you're combat arms, combat arms direct support, military police, anything like that. So those are your guys that are capable. And most of those people come from rural areas. And people think of Virginia and the D.C. Beltway and all, and that is part of Virginia, but Virginia is backwoods country, folks. 
And I just don't see these men, by and large, not at all, but by and large, being willing to go out and do the bidding of politicians against their brother-in-laws. This is one of the real things that makes the National Guard um, what probably just should be our military as a whole. And well, we need Marine, Marine Guard, and have Air Force Guard, and have freaking everybody Guard. Okay, uh, what I mean by that is our government should not be in the business of fighting wars all over the damn world anyway. National defense should be about national defense. And I know this is hard for people to get their head around in a globalist era, but our nation ends at you know the Atlantic, Pacific, Gulf of Mexico, the Canadian border, and the Mexican border, and then we have you know. Hawaii and Alaska, but we have borders. And national defense is about defending your borders, not telling other people what to do and going out and, 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 and forcing your will on them. We call that colonialism, and we're involved in neo-colonialism today instead of national defense. But the other side of a National Guard unit is, you're, if you deploy troops in some sort of uprising, They're being deployed in their own backyard. I, I think it's a lot more likely, and it's, 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 it's nothing to do with California being the fruit basket that it is, but I think it's much more likely if you had California National Guard troops deployed into Virginia that they would do what they're told in this situation um, than you know, Virginia troops because this is where I live. You know, all the trouble in Hurricane Katrina with gun seizures came from law enforcement that came in from other states because they didn't know what things were like in Louisiana. It wasn't Louisiana PD or Louisiana guardsmen that were telling people they had to give up their guns during the, the aftermath of Katrina. It's people from California, Pennsylvania, New York, etc. Because, well, where we're from, you can't just walk around with a gun. Well, welcome to the South. So I think there's a lot of power in that. But I'm going to tell you that I think Virginia is the model for the rest of the country. That This is probably, instead of getting political, get active. Why can't we be politically active? Go ahead. You do that. But can you imagine if every state took a page out of this book And every state had a map that looks like the Virginia map right now, where 90% of that state is basically sanctuary counties to say, we're not de And I don't think we should wait until we're in the situation Virginia's in. And this shouldn't just apply to the state-level government. This should apply to the federal government. Preemptive. You're not doing this. No. And the reason that it can be done is because the people that they're trying to take the guns from have the guns in the damn first place. There's about 55 million gun owners in America. 55 million. Let me explain something to you about that. If you take the, the 20 nations with the largest standing armies and combine all of their personnel, 55 million is more armed people then the top 20 nations, including our own, have in military service. That is a shitload of people. And it's it, I, I don't care what anybody says and tries to convince you. It is why they want to ban guns. Because you, you can only push a population with over 50 million people who are armed so far. 
And it's exactly why the founders protected the right to keep and bear arms. And for the people like, but they tell you the militia. Well, first of all, who are the militia? I tell you, sir, they are the whole of the people. You can look up who said that if you would like to for yourself. In fact, the only people that aren't in the militia are the government officials. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's the whole point. It would be George Mason, by the way, that said that. Um, but the whole militia clause within the Second Amendment is irrelevant to the right. There's a comma there. Prior to the comma, what you have is the justification. After the comma, you have the statement of the right that is not to be infringed upon. And it says, shall not be infringed. There's no legal contract anywhere on planet Earth, especially within U.S. law, where the term shall not is questioned as to its meaning. And the people in our Constitution and in our Bill of Rights and other amendments only means the people. It doesn't mean the people that you choose for it to mean this time. It is not legal in a contract for the same term to mean two different things. That's not, that's, that is not, that it would be a unreasonable assertion. And my final component to this is the, the, the Constitution of the United States is a contract. This will blow your mind a little bit if you've never heard me talk about it before. It is not a contract between the federal government and the states. Because the federal government is not party to the contract that is the Constitution. Because the federal government can't be party to the contract, because the federal government didn't exist to be party to the contract until the Constitution was established. The Articles of Confederation were the original confederation that we had a U.S. federal-type government with, but that government was not party to the contract. In the formation of our current government, our, our current constitutional republic, the establishment of that constitution created the entity that we call the federal government today. So it can't be. See, how can you be party to something and you didn't exist until it happened? So who is the contract between? The contract is between the states. The states and the states as representatives of the individuals within the state. And so what that means... <laughs> is that the, the, the entire purpose of the Constitution of the United States of America is the formation and the limitation of the central government. But what it also means is it's a contract. It's a contract. Who wrote the contract? Well, the government in the form of the states wrote the contract. Well, here's a basic principle of contract law. Any ambiguity in a contract benefits the party that didn't draft it. So the federal government just gets to shut up and be limited. The states are the party that drafted it. And the people are the party that agreed to it through sending representatives to a convention to create the Constitution. Got that? That means any ambiguity in the contract benefits the people, not the state. Really, really simple. So... Well, does this or does this not pertain to everybody? Well, it could pertain to everybody. 
I mean, there's nobody can make a, a legitimate argument that it that it can't. That could be the intent. Any ambiguity, well, we're not sure, benefits the people. Who are the people? And this is what people are going to stand behind in situations like Virginia. But our founders very clearly understood that government was a threat and government was not to be trusted. They didn't have the Second Amendment so you could shoot a deer or a rabbit. That was just assumed and understood. They had a Second Amendment as a protection of your inherent right to self-defense against everybody, including them. And people would point out accurately, I will add, that the Second Amendment, when it was drafted, did not apply to the states like Virginia or Pennsylvania or Georgia or all the other states that have joined the Union since that didn't exist at the time or were territories at the time. You're right, it didn't. But thanks to the Supreme Court of the United States and the incorporation of the Bill of Rights, it does now. It does now. So, and I'll tell you what, it wasn't because the founders didn't want that. It wasn't because they didn't want it to uh, to apply to the states, because the states would agree to put in their own limitations. They wanted to run their own constitutions. That's how a Republican form of government works. Anyway, what do I think is going to happen in Virginia? I don't know. But I think from sea to shining sea, people should be putting together this very model that the citizens of Virginia have preemptively. And the more states that do it, the more power it has. Let's take another one. So Sean from Maine says, To make hard lemonade, would it be the same procedure as making hard cider or mead? I made a gallon of mead, and to be honest, I hate it. I'm sorry to hear that. Maybe you should try a different kind. Maybe you should try lemon mead. I don't know. I tried making hard cider, fell in love with it. I want to try some lemonade next. Thank you for getting me to try different things and learning new skills. You really do make a positive influence in people's lives. Thanks. Sean from Maine. Sean, um, no. And let me explain why. So, lemonade is sweet lemon juice and water. Sugar, water, and lemon. So, if we make some lemonade and we throw some yeast in it, it'll ferment. Well, what if I told you if you ferment orange juice, you pretty much end up with lemon flavor. And the reason is simple. You strip all the sugar out of it with the fermentation process. You ferment something with a lot of lemon in it, and it is harsh. Think eating lemon with no residual sweetness. You know, like eating it like an orange. So it's probably not going to work out really well. Now, you can look up something called Skeeter Pea, which may be something you want to start using your slurry to make. It's kind of, sort of, in a way... Uh, a hard lemonade, but hard lemonade is lemonade with vodka in it. So if I wanted to make my own hard lemonade, I'd start making fuel, if you you catch my drift. Um, Or you can use small amounts of lemon. Um, Michael Jordan makes a mead. He calls a, a, a summer shandy. It has lemon and orange in it. You could try that. What you might want to try Make yourself a batch of your cider and use about half the juice from a Meyer lemon and uh, the rind, rind, not the rind, the the zest of the whole thing. So zest an entire Meyer lemon, drop that per per gallon, 
and then cut the Meyer lemon in half and squeeze that Meyer lemon into your cider. And just just go with that. I think you'll really like that. There'll be a lot more lemony character in there than you would expect. Um, the only way you're going to do anything approaching a hard lemonade, it's not going to completely taste like ass, is you're going to have to ferment it. You're going to have to use like sorbates to kill the yeast, and you're going to have to back sweeten it. That's the only way it's not going to taste like ass, because you're going to strip all the, the sugars out of it. And, you know, you're not looking for something when you do a hard lemonade that's like freaking 20% alcohol or something like that. So even even with that, you're probably going to want to use a pretty tame yeast. And, and I just don't see it coming out very good. Now, if anybody's made anything like a hard lemonade uh, with fermentation, let us know what you did. Uh, next up, Michael says, how do you vacuum seal wet foods? I like to sous vide cook. But my vacuum sealer doesn't work when the foods are wet and juicy. How do I fix the issue? Well, Michael, um, here's two ways to do this. One, take your food, put it into a, a vac seal bag with your liquid marinade, fold it over, put it in a second bag, and use the pulse vacuum feature on your vacuum sealer if it has one. So what that is, is a lot of vacuum sealers, you just push the button, and when it detects the vacuum is heavy enough, it stops and it seals. Well, most good vacuum sealers have a pulse feature where you can do it manually. So with just doing a double bag and you know just a, a simple fold over, you can still get plenty of air pulled out of that inner bag, and put the fold pointing down to the bottom of the bag, pulse vacuum, And as soon as you start to see any liquid come out of that inner bag, stop and seal it. It'll be plenty aired out enough to get good contact and, and stay under the, the water in your sous vide cooker. That's one way. The other way, simple way, get your marinade all over your steak. What I like to do when I'm putting anything into a, a, a vacuum seal bag, though, you know, kind of like think of you do socks where you kind of scrunch them up on your fingers and pull them out like a tube, like you're casing a sausage. Like fold a big flap over so that nothing touches the inside of the part you're going to seal. Just kind of fold that over with make a, you know, an inch, an inch cuff, like cuff on a jean. Put your food in there. Put your moisture in there. Unfold your bag. Take the bag and kind of, you know, move the stuff so it's well coated on your meat. Lay it on its side, but just the you know the, the end that's open a little bit elevated. Throw it in a freezer, freeze it. Not like for days, like for a couple hours, till you freeze all the liquid. Then vacuum seal it. Then you can label it whatever it is, and throw it back in the freezer, and when you take it out, you just throw it in your sous vide machine, or it's a sous vide. If um, you know if you want to cook that day. Just throw it in there. It'll defrost really, really fast. So there you go. Either freeze it or double bag it. Um, really expensive cryovac style sealers, they are able to um, actually vacuum seal stuff in a wet marinade without pulling it up into the seam. But they're very expensive machines. I mean, even my uh, my Cabela's commercial vac sealer, I think that thing's like a, I think it sells for like 500 bucks. But if you watch it, you can get it for like somewhere between three and 350 It's got the same problem you're talking about. So those are my two ways of dealing with it. Um, Devin says, article for Jack. Boy, you called it. Trump halts new tariffs on China trade war. 
Uh, phase one, of course it is. Hope you're well and warm in Texas. I got lots of rain up here in Seattle. We had one of the most beautiful weekends, uh, Devin, that I have had in a long time this weekend. It was a pleasure to be outside, and I spent a lot of time out there. I didn't get a lot of work done on Saturday because I gave my wife a wife day and took her out to lunch and just hung out with her. Did a lot of work yesterday. I wanted to talk about this at the beginning of the show, and I forgot to do it. I worked on my uh, my garden beds and built some trellis frames. I'll have to get a video out for you guys with that. And I built a uh, seed starting system out of uh, Cracky Hydroponics, like I've been talking about doing, using that uh, shelf system and those lights that I put out a couple weeks ago. I have a video out on that today. Uh, that'll go out in the Daily Mail as well. So if you have the Daily Mail, you get a link to it. So I had a great weekend, and you know what? I woke up this morning, it's freaking cold out. It's 39 degrees right now. I didn't wake up to 39. It's 39 right now at like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I don't like it. If I liked it cold, I wouldn't be in Texas, right? Uh, and we still get some cold now and then. Anyway, um, I just want to say a little bit about the trade deal with Trump. Um, there's a lot of people saying, it's not a real deal. It's not a real deal. It's a real deal. When China says it's a deal and the U.S. says it's a deal, that's the very nature of a deal. Now, a lot of people are criticizing it as not being a great deal. Okay, but it's still a deal. I really think that Trump and China are going to work this thing out. And like I said last week on the random crap episode with Nicole, it is in Trump's best interest to some of these things he's working on for him to get them done as late in 2020 as possible. The closer to the election that he gets a deal done with China, the better it is for his re-election campaign. Now, those, some of you are new. I mean, people listen to this show all the time for the first time on any given day. This is not pro or anti-Trump. I, I don't really care about Trump very much. I really don't. Um, but I like to do a political analysis because the bigger macro trend is what we prepare for. I think China has to make a deal with the United States now. They have to. And I'll tell you why. Because other countries are making deals. So England, Britain is going to Brexit, right? That's going to happen. The the Tory majority win in um, in Britain is just unbelievable. It's like a two-thirds majority. People, uh, areas that voted Tory, which is like our Republicans, um, there's places that voted for Tories in the U.K., that hadn't done that since World War II. So they're going to leave the the European Union. And Trump's already said to their incoming prime minister, we're going to make a great deal with you. So that means the EU, sans Britain, has to make the deal with the United States as well. All their threats about things, they, they, they kind of fall in line. Or Britain gets at a hell of a trade advantage with the United States. We just passed the USMCA, United States, Mexico, Canada. See, once, this was, again, this isn't pro or Trump, but some people thought, why is this guy kind of going into trade wars with everybody at the same time? Because the inevitable result, if you do that, is somebody folds. And once somebody folds, it's inevitable that everybody folds. And... Trump gets himself into a position where I don't have to have everything I want. 
what are you willing to do? And if it is enough that looks like a win politically, and it puts the United States in a little bit better footing than we were when we started, well, guess what? We'll do that deal. And so once China folds, and they've half-folded, everybody else has to get in line. Everybody else has to get in line. Because, again, you go to a major disadvantage. If everybody has a deal but you, well, well, then what happens is, especially with an importation uh, economy like the United States, if China doesn't make a deal, companies start doing their manufacturing in the Philippines or Sri Lanka or somewhere else in Asia. And once they move a facility... It's a hell of a thing. It's, a, it's gone for a generation trying to get it back into China. So China's at a point where, and I don't think people understand this, their economy's hurting from this. You have America, with whether you think it's true or not, with the best economy that we have had in the lives of most living people. And you got the Chinese economy on the ropes. What Trump has to do to pull that deal in is he has to let China in some way look like they get a big win. Because in their culture, that's you know saving face. It's incredibly important. He and, and, and if you read Art of the Deal, and, and deal making is really where Trump is at his best. You know how the, the playbook works. And the first thing is you ask for everything you can think of that you could ever possibly want up front all at the same time. You take an extreme position. And the reason you do that is so eventually when you actually start to negotiate, you have stuff to give. And what you end up asking for, even if it's still quite advantageous to yourself, looks pretty reasonable. And then the other side of the art of the deal is if when you leave the table and a deal is signed, if both parties don't feel like they won, you did it wrong. In a good deal, both sides feel good about it at the end of it. And I think that's Trump's good at this. You can say all kinds of negative things about him, and God knows I have. But deal-making, he's good at. Uh, he's also getting reelected. I, I just thought I'd throw that out there for you all again, especially those of you that hate him and just can't stand it. It's going to happen. He's getting reelected. And I keep hearing all of these hopes and dreams of the left. And the latest one was, well, maybe maybe evangelicals aren't really going to stand behind him because of all his stuff. And how they, look, the the evangelical, the religious right that supported Trump support him now more than they ever have. They don't support him because they think he's orange Jesus, the way some of you facetious people say. And I'll say another thing too for for those of you that don't understand this. And again, I'm not a religious person. I don't have any religious faith that I follow. I call myself a deist. I believe in some form of a god. And I'll leave it at that for today. But I do understand, especially the Christian faith. I have a pretty deep background. I was born and raised Catholic. Went to Catholic school until I managed to get myself thrown out. Served as a lay minister uh, in, a di in a different denomination for a while. Um, when people say things like, God is using President Trump to do his will. They don't mean that President Trump is some godlike being or some, you know, 
hand-picked messenger of God. The belief is that God uses all leaders that way. That no man can ever lead a nation without the approval of God. So that same person might express it a little bit differently, but they believe God used Barack Obama and George Bush. Two and one, both. Bill Clinton, Jimmy Carter, Dwight Eisenhower, John F. Kennedy. Every president we've ever had, God used. That's what they believe. I'm not saying I believe it. I'm telling you that's what they believe and that's what they mean. So they know the man is flawed. They don't care because he's doing what they want done. And the biggest thing he's done, if you're an evangelical, is over 200 federal judges and two Supreme Court justices. And let's be honest. He gets reelected. Ginsburg's going to go while he's in power. And there's no way he's losing the Senate this time around, and I don't think Ginsburg can make it you know, to another election. So you're looking at three Supreme Court appointments and a bunch more federal judge appointments. There's going to be a conservative majority in the judicial until 2040 to 2050 now. Now, I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm saying it is. And that's one main reason. The, the people that... Like when, like everybody kind of sort of knows this, but we get up toward the election, he's going to have that as part of his record he's going to be running on. And that excites people. And that's what wins elections is getting the people that were going to vote for you anyway to show up. Next one, short one from Matt, North Carolina. I need a recommendation for a good floor safe. I'm getting ready to have a basement slab poured under my house, and I would like to install a floor safe. It does not need to be overly large to store guns, etc., but I would like to store some gold, silver, and other valuables. I heard you mention them on the show before. Any information you could share would be appreciated. Thanks for what you do. Long-time listener and MSB member. Matt, you need to contact a local safe company. There's two parts to a floor safe, and one is just a tube that goes in the ground. The safe part, right, the part that actually does the, the bidding, is the part you're going to really spend the money on is the, think of it like a door. But the way these things work, you'll have a tube goes down in the ground or a square um, casing that goes in the ground, depending on the shape of your safe. And the concrete usually is drilled out. I imagine they can sleeve it before you pour if you get your, if you get in touch with a, a safe company right now. And then your safe will have four or more large bolts that come out from around the rim. And they'll go into the concrete. And it's why it is an incredibly secure way to store valuables. It's, 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 I'm not saying you can't get into one if you're a safe cracker or somebody like that, but getting into one of those, you know, even with a jackhammer or something, eventually, sure. But, like your average criminal doesn't have time to be firing up an air compressor running a jackhammer in your house. Um, and those bolts go into the concrete. So I've never seen one installed prior to a slab being poured, so I'm not sure how that would work. Generally, they core, and then they core into the sides of the concrete for your bolts to go in. Um, but they're all good. They're all good. Just find a local safe company on Google, call them up, tell them what you're doing, and, you know, buy based on the features you're looking for. They're never that big. Floor safes are never that big because 
what you're looking at is just, uh, again, the safe itself is really just a closure. And the concrete itself. Now, I've been thinking about this. I have never seen this done, but I guess it's totally possible to buy just a really good safe. You know, like a square safe housed all around and just put that into a floor. Um, and, but yeah, talk to, talk to, I would definitely go to safe company. I don't, I don't have any brand loyalty here, I guess is what I'm going on. Uh, next up, this is from Tim. Tim says, here's another article about school decline. Citing decline in student enrollment, Bethel University to cut staff and faculty. And this is an article that came out on the 11th of December, 2019. Um, I'm not going to read the article to you because I don't think most of you really want to hear me read an article. And if you can tell, due to being cold and flu season, my wife constantly coughing on me. I've got a throat thing going this week already. Um, I do want to read one line in this to you because this is just like the last one I covered like this. This is typical of the spin you would hear on a company that's about to go bankrupt. Um, here's what it says. These changes, while painful, are a necessary part of our work to ensure Bethel will thrive well into the future, said Deb Harless, the university's executive vice president and provost, in a statement. Um, come on, Debbie. We know you're full of shit. You're not doing this because you're going to be thriving well into the future. You're doing this because you're in trouble. I, I want to point this out again. The total enrollment in universities has declined every year for the last eight years. And not eight years ago, and we've never gotten there. That Eight years ago, we had a decline. Seven years ago, we had a decline from year eight. Six years ago, a decline from year seven. Does that make sense? That's where we're at in this. And when you have an industry that's shrinking and you have literally tens of thousands of companies in that one industry, what do you think is going to happen? So we're not going to go to a point where there are, you know, there's no there's no universities. I like I said, that's never what I've said. But you're going to see more and more universities downsizing, selling off assets, and you will see entire universities that have been around for a 100 years close their doors forever and go away. Now, your state universities and stuff like that, they're going to stay around a lot longer. But, you know, you're starting seeing your private colleges, etc., and I guarantee you as well, you're going to start seeing some of this happen at, you know, like um, satellite schools, I guess. I'm not sure what they call them because I didn't go, right? But, like, um, my son went to one of the bigger one of those in Texas called University of Texas Arlington. So UT, of course, is not in Arlington. But UTA is in Arlington. So these, like, you're going to see some of those scaling back as well. Right now, if it wasn't for the the government funding scam, half of them would be out of business in, in a couple weeks. It, it, they really would. But it's going to keep coming. Don't you think it won't? Uh, what, I, what I've been trying to do with this uh, and the universities uh, and, and kind of the whole school system as a whole, I think public schools, um, government schools are going to be in trouble too. It's going to take longer there because they have an enforced mandated monopoly. But this is a mega trend. 
And it's simply the case that we have been educating people pretty much under the same model for 150, almost 200 years now. We don't do anything the way we did 150 years ago at all, except run schools. Yeah, I know the schools have tablets and computers in them and all now, but we pretty much run schools the same way. And it's been made possible because the state has mandated it. And even where they have, like, no one has to go to college, but they've, they've used public money to convince you that you do. They've given you loans with, with, you know, guaranteed loans to people who have no business being in school. And they've created this artificial bubble that's protected it from market forces. But you can only protect things from market forces for so long. Because as I'm fond of saying, in the end, the market is going to market. It's what markets do. And, and that's where we're at with this. So the, the thing to do then is not, well, Jack's right. Hey, look, Jack's right. No, no. The thing to do is how do you use this megatrend in your life? Is it through creating programs for people so that they can get jobs? If you're an employer, how do you use this megatrend? You know, if you're a business person, how do you use this megatrend? If you are a young person just starting out and everybody's telling you to go to college, how do you use this megatrend? I identify megatrends not so people will call me Spiracodamus. I identify megatrends so that you can figure out what to do with them or about them. Uh, next up, got a gun question here, and this is one I've never had before. Um, Hatch is asking me, how does one get a gun out of their name sold 20 years ago that no longer have a serial number and or the info to where the firearm was sold? I sold a pistol to an individual at a gun show. I recorded the serial number and driver's license of the buyer, but through irresponsibility, I've lost or misplaced the information over the years. Where the hell might I find a permanent record <coughs> about this firearm and have registered to me so I can make the case uh, that I no longer have it? Okay, so here's the thing. You don't have a gun registered to you, dude. That's not how this works. When you go and you have a background check done by an FFL to buy a gun, they have to hold on to that. It is a permanent record. It's not like you're one from high school that doesn't really exist. But it's not like this gun is registered to hatch in Texas. It's this gun was sold in 1991 or 1986 to this guy. And at the time that he bought it, he lived in this place. And this is how he answered these questions. It... it it would be very unlikely that the police could make a case that you're responsible for this gun. Now, what I might do if I were you is contact your local PD and say, just what, what would you do if, if you, you know, I thought about this and realized that I was looking for my paperwork where I used to keep all this stuff. I couldn't find it. I sold this gun. It was totally legal at a gun show. People do it all the time. But I got to thinking, like, what should I do? And I don't know that you could, but you might even be able to file a report with them just simply making a statement that you had a gun and you don't remember the serial number of what it was, you know, a, a, a Glock 19 or whatever it was, and that that was sold approximately on this date, I guess. I don't really think there's much to be done. Um Like I said, my only concern always with private sales is that if something does get done with that gun, it would be nice to be able to say this is when it was sold and who it was sold to. And after that, I can't, I can't help you. You got to go talk to, to Bill or Tom or Joe or whatever about it. Um, 
But this is not uncommon, and it's probably not the risk that you think it is. But I am going to punt this one over to Steve Wise and see if he has any additional thoughts on it for you. But I, I wouldn't be too worried about it. Last one from Jerry in Nebraska. Hey, I have a question about filling up raised beds. I have several 4 by 8 by 10 inch deep raised beds, and I'm at the point where adding compost uh, and amendments, my beds are so full, there's no room for the mulch. My question is, do I start scooping out in, in the spring and add compost? This may sound like a dumb question, but I don't think I've heard it addressed. Uh, Jerry, what I would do is throw a little bit of mulch on top of your beds right now. If you're not gonna, if it sounds like you're gonna plant in spring, you're not gonna plant now. Throw a tarp over them and don't worry about it. And by magic, this spring, when you pull those tarps off of your beds, there'll be room for mulch. There'll be room for more. If you want to add compost, there'll be room to add compost. Cause they're gonna set, you just filled them. They're going to settle over the next three months. So just don't worry about it. Now, what if you had a really full bed and you wanted to plant now? Throw an inch of mulch on it. I know it's above the, the It'll stay. Most of it will stay. Just throw it on there. You know, people build raised beds all the time without wood. They just pile up dirt, and the dirt just kind of stays in a pile. It happens. Trust me. So I wouldn't really worry about this one. And this is a it's not a dumb question. Because it's something that I get asked about in various ways a lot of times. Like, I, where do I put the mulch? Throw some on there. Some of it's going to fall off. So what? It'll be in the it'll be in the aisles between your beds. I like mulching the whole damn garden area anyway. To me, one of the best things you can do is lay down cardboard and then lay down weed blocker. Uh, this is between your beds, and then put four inches of wood mulch on top of it. And then next year, when you go to mulch, use the broke-down mulch and throw it in your beds and replace the mulch that you're walking on. But yeah, just throw a little bit on it, and if you don't have any room, like if it's literally piled up high in the center, just leave it alone. I recommend tarping it, but if it's going to be, if you, you know, you think you got 10 beds, you have to go buy 10 tarps, maybe not. But if you have tarps or you can get them inexpensively, tarp it, even if you don't mulch it, don't worry about it. I promise you this spring, you'll have room. It's going to settle. That's what beds do. Anyway, with that, we've wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Remember, um, if you want to support this show, there's a really easy way to do that. I mean, completely, simplistically easy way to do it. And that is to do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. You do your online shopping there. You help us no matter what you buy. Today, uh, I have a new item for you for item of the day. And remember, everything on T-Spaz, I own it. I use it. I've got this one in my hand right now. If I would not spend my money on it, I don't recommend it for you. This is a little knife made by a company called Victor Knox. You've heard of Victor Knox, right? These are the people who make the famous Swiss Army knives. Um, but this is not a Swiss Army knife. This is a budding and grafting knife, and it's for grafting trees. That's what it's for. So it's basically a little straight razor. And it's got kind of a little milled component into it. It's for like lifting bark for budding or bud grafting. And of course, what is it mainly for? It's for grafting. That's where we take one piece of a tree and put it onto another piece of a tree and get a new tree. Uh, generally, what we do is we take rootstock and then we take a known variety. So in other words, we have like an apple rootstock and then we want to grow like an Arkansas black apple. We take a little piece of what's called scion wood. And we graft that onto the rootstock, and we get a new Arkansas black. Instead of paying 30 to $50 for a tree, we make one for basically for free. It's like magic. 
And I've always considered all forms of plant propagation to basically be like printing money. And grafting really is. And there's a lot of different things you can do when you learn the skill of grafting. One is, you know, you can have like a, some kind of wild apple out in your property. And you can go graft productive apple varieties onto it. You can do that with wild plums as well. There's even people called gorilla grafters, which are basically uh, peaceful anarchists. They go out to parks and, like, you know, they have these ornamental pear trees and they graft actual pears onto them so that people can have free food. So grafting in itself, I think most people are familiar with it, and that's what this thing was made for. And I've done quite a bit of grafting with it. And, gee, you graft one tree with a $20 knife like this and you just paid for it. Plus you've added a skill, and I think this is a skill that everybody should develop. But you know what? It's a damn little, little knife. It's really small and lightweight, but it's incredibly well made for a $20 product. I mean, it's made by the Swiss. Come on. Uh, and again, it's like having a little folding, you know, it's not really a locking, but it, it locks better than most straight razors. That's really what it's like. It's got a single bevel, which means one side of the blade is flat, and the other side of the edge has actually got a bevel to it. And we do that because when we're grafting, and that's done with so that you're holding the knife in your hand, Uh, the bevel's pointing up and the flat side's down. So when you're cutting into a graft, you get a nice flat surface that you're bringing the other pieces of material into contact with. But what that means is, being it's kind of thin, really good quality stainless steel, this is incredibly easy not to sharpen. It's designed to stay razor sharp. I have never sharpened mine with anything other than a simple kitchen steel. I've had it five years, and I promise you to God right now, it will shave the hair off my arm like the day I got it. And all I've ever done is touch it up with a steel. I use it for all kinds of things. I use it a lot when I'm out in my garden and I'm harvesting lettuces and other greens because you hold it exactly the way you would for a graph, for grafting. You grab the greens with your, your left hand and you just pull, and it's just right through. It's just a great little knife for a lot of things. It's anything you use a little knife for. You put it in the front pocket of a pair of jeans, you forget it's there. It is one of my favorite little knives. Now, here's the thing about it, though. How many things can you buy for 20 bucks today that you could have for five years and they'd still be just as good as the day you bought it? A knife like this, I guess if you use it enough and you sharpen it enough, you get to a point where, like, I don't know if you've ever seen a really old knife and the blade's, like, half gone. I guess you could get there. I don't really notice any of that on mine yet. But it is the kind of thing, if you didn't use it heavily... I don't see why it couldn't last all human lifetime. So here's my plan for mine. About another year, I'm going to think my grandson's old enough to be walking around with a knife that's this sharp. I'm not quite comfortable. I know his mom wouldn't be yet. So if he was my direct son, he'd probably have it already. But yeah, grandpas understand their place. I'm going to give this to him next year. And it's going to be grandpa's knife. The grandpa carried for six years. The grandpa made trees with. The grandpa used it in his garden. I bet you, I just bet you it goes in the little uh, treasure safe that I got him. And I bet you he has it long after I'm dead. It's going to be priceless to him. And it's the kind of thing that actually he can use it in his life. He can learn a skill with it. But it was mine. And he'll have it even when I'm gone. But it's 20 bucks. So when I give him one, you know what I'm going to do? The day he gets it, I'll get a brand new one. I'll carry it for four or five years. And by then my granddaughter will be old enough. And I'll give her another one after it's got a good amount of grandpa in it. I just thought that was kind of cool and something I figured I'd share with you guys since we're coming up on Christmas. And most people are thinking about giving their kids crap. Well, I wouldn't buy one of these and give it to my son or my, my grandson right away. But it's a good time as any 
to get on with putting some grandpa into that knife. And I guarantee if you get one of these, you'll figure out how to put some grandpa in it, even if you're not a grandpa yet, because you will carry it, and you will use it, and you will enjoy it, and it will never let you down. Again, it's made by the Swiss. Swiss know what they're doing. With that, we've wrapped up another episode of the show. Time for a Christmas song and Christmas week. We have The Season is Upon Us by Dropkick Murphys. Uh, this one's the, we'll call it the erratic fun one of the, of the, of the week. Um, it's about an extremely dysfunctional family at Christmas time. Do you know how you find an extremely dysfunctional family at Christmas time? <laughs> Go find a family. We're all dysfunctional. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Upon us, it's that time of year. Brandy and eggnog, there's plenty of cheer. There's lights on the trees and there's wreaths to be hung. There's mischief and mayhem and songs to be sung. There's bells and there's holly, the kids are gung ho. True love finds a kiss beneath fresh mistletoe. Some families are messed up while others are fine. If you think yours is crazy, well, you should see mine. My sisters are whack jobs, I wish I had none. Their husbands are losers and so are their sons. Snowballs. I'd like to take them out back and deck them more than the halls. With family like this, I would have to confess I'd be better off lonely, distraught, and depressed. The season's upon us, it's that time of year. Brandy and eggnog, there's plenty of cheer. There's lights on the trees and there's wreaths to be hung. There's mischief and See you.